The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. I think when I first started in this industry is, oh my gosh, that feels so horrible and manipulative. But it it honestly, it is very rare I found someone who does not want to tell their story and has not found cathartic to them or is very happy to tell it to help someone else. So I think that's what's very rewarding about what I do. Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, episode 18. I am your host, Becky Saltzman. And in this episode, we are going to take a peek inside the world of nonfiction television making. All right. What does that mean? Well, let's put a pin in the whole concept of nonfiction for just a few minutes because I think we're all grappling pretty significantly with what the distinction between nonfiction and fiction really is and how to identify it and where to find it. And that is, although potentially a topic for another conversation, it's something to think about as you're listening to this interview with my friend, Laura Fravel. Laura Fravel, over the past 15 years, has been at the forefront of visual storytelling as a filmmaker, a producer, a photographer, a show doctor for National Geographic, The Washington Post, The New York Times, PBS museum exhibits, nonprofits, and for-profit companies and NGOs. Laura's work has helped celebrate the progressive women of Rwanda and brought attention to water relief efforts in impoverished nations, brought awareness to the importance of vaccines, and educated the public about infectious diseases. She's crossed the Atlantic on an aircraft carrier and come nose to snout with a whale shark. Her adventures are varied, amazing, and fascinating. I met Laura several years back. I had written a reality show treatment and had shopped this treatment, and the reality show was going to be about this head shop. I thought it would be fascinating. The characters were amazing. The customers were fascinating. A head shop for West Coast people probably know a head shop is traditionally where you go for marijuana, cannabis, weed, pot paraphernalia and all the trappings that go along with that. I had proposed this idea of doing this reality show around this one particular head shop that has amazing glass works of art and met the DP or the videographer who had worked on a lot of well-known reality shows, and he brought Laura in as maybe the showrunner, producer, and I met Laura, and we just instantly clicked and have been friends ever since. And then she joined me in my first Curiosity Mastermind group, and that was really fun. So I said I wanted to be able to pick her brain and take a peek inside the world of nonfiction, and particularly documentary television. Laura, I might add, is not normally 
the reality TV production queen. Everyone, probably most people who have dabbled or been significantly a part of the nonfiction television production process has probably come in contact with or worked on reality television shows. And we talk about that. We talk about the difference between a documentary television show, a traditional nonfiction television show, reality TV with a capital R, reality TV with a lowercase r. And this really gets to a question that I have that I think could be fun to think about as you're listening to this episode, which might be, what is reality? How do we discern it? And with all of this incredible access to information, how do we extract reality ourselves out of narrative when it is not presented to us as a tidy story with a traditional or anticipated or expected story arc? How do we look at information when it doesn't come together with a tiny, tidy takeaway? And that's something to think about that I have fun thinking about and had fun thinking about when I was talking to Laura. She's describing how to make nonfiction television and how to find story in all kinds of reality, whether she is working with a company, helping a company tell their story or find their stories, or whether she just gets a call from a major studio saying, go make a story about the Great Barrier Reef, and then having to find that, or go make a story about this scientific discovery. And what do you do with that? Where do you start? Do you start with Google? Do you just get on a plane? And she takes us through that process. And here's a little curiosity muscle flexing exercise for you as you're listening to this episode. How do you distinguish between what you want to know and what you need to know? And how do you as a storyteller give people what they want to know, but also provide them the information that they need to know? And now please enjoy my conversation with Laura Fravel. Laura, thank you so much for coming to my studio and willing to be subjected to my curious questions about you and your career. So I have a question for you because I don't know, what does someone want to be when they grow up who ultimately becomes a television documentary maker? I never set out to necessarily be a documentary television producer maker. I set out to be a marine biologist. I think I had the curiosity, but I wanted to know all about dolphins and whales and how they communicated with each other. So I went to the college for biology, concentrated in marine biology. Where'd you go to college? University of Virginia. They do not have a marine biology program. <laughs> I was thinking that would not be my first, that wouldn't have, that wouldn't have been my first guess was, for a marine biologist. I set out for a good college, was going to go on to graduate school, but kind of towards the end of my undergrad, I went and did research with Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in this amazing group called Sea. I sailed the Bermuda Triangle on this amazing education ship and quickly learned that being out on the ocean is absolutely amazing. But I was so not into data analysis and scientific research. Is, I admire anybody who is a scientist because it takes a lot of meticulous data analysis, and that was just not for me. All right, so let me get, I want to put in the show notes what the name of this ship is it still available is it something that it college is. students it's could called, do it's c is their short but it's c education association and it's this amazing they're based kind of right in woods hole they're partnered with woods hole oceanographic institute and marine biological laboratories this is this program and you went it, there and realized you didn't want to yeah it's, it's kind of like a semester abroad except 
you learn all about marine biology, marine oceanography, and you actually get hands-on. So part of the time is actually on the campus, and the other part of the time is out on one of their huge sailing schooners, where you get to learn everything from actual oceanography to navigating a boat with a sextant, like back in the 1800s. Wow. Okay, so did you get seasick? No. <laughs> okay, that would not I, be for me. I would be... I was oddly one... Yes, there were probably 30 of us on the ship, and only me and the captain were not seasick, which is... That's pretty hardcore. It is. That's cool. That's <laughs> so maybe I should have been a marine biologist. Yeah, <laughs> maybe you should have. Okay, so then you did that, and then from there, what did you do? I decided research wasn't for me, so I decided to go more into education and looked a lot into marine education, environmental education, and this was right after I graduated from college and had done a little traveling I decided I was going to go to the mecca of marine biology, which is Great Barrier Reef. So I picked up and somehow went to the Great Barrier Reef right after college, a town called Cairns, right in Australia, and got a job doing marine education there and also part-time doing that and part-time working on a uh, dive boat in which I then got certified scuba dive instructor and then I started teaching scuba diving and then I got kicked out of Australia because my working visa ran out. What did you have to do to be able to go there? After I did this kind of quote-unquote semester abroad on this sailing ship with the marine biology, I just had a real desire to go overseas. So I spent my last semester of college finishing my degree, but also working and saving money. And then also researching into and applying for a working visa in Australia. And I don't even know if they still do it anymore. But um, so, yeah, I applied and somehow they don't give out many back then they didn't and I got a working visa so it's good for a year you and that's why you Australia. had to leave after a year because your visa was expiring was. and then you came back and did what and I didn't want to come back to the United States quite yet I was enjoying being overseas and meeting all these amazing people and and diving and being in the marine environment and teaching kind of marine education even though you know you can barely make a living on it but so then I went to the Caribbean and was in the Bahamas for a short stint and then lived on Grand Cayman for almost a year. I was working for a dive shop teaching scuba diving, so certified people in scuba diving and guiding them on the reefs when they wanted to go scuba diving through a couple of different companies. And then, make a long story short, basically someone was like, oh, you, you can scuba dive. Here's an underwater camera. We need some footage for our hotel chain. So there were big Hilton Marriott kind of hotel chains on Great Barrier Reef and I guess not so lucky for them, but lucky for me. You know, if you dive, you can't necessarily take underwater video. But I learned pretty quickly and then was doing that for a shop there in Cayman. And then eventually kind of got bored with that and ended up on a yacht for a little while, a private yacht, teaching diving. And finally, I realized I needed to come back. And I came back to the United States, was teaching marine education in Florida Eventually got tired of making about, you know, fifteen, sixteen thousand dollars a year. I think that's when I decided, okay, what do I really want to do with my life after I've kind of been all over gallivanting, exploring and I loved the the marine environment, the marine education, the environmental education, sharing that knowledge with people, educating people, opening people's eyes, making them even more curious. But then I also loved the creative aspect that I had suddenly fallen upon of you know, the video, the underwater video. So I kind of somehow in my brain married the two ideas and decided, well, wow, that's National Geographic. That's discovery. Using film and the creative arts to 
educate people in the world around us, you know, whether it be the marine environment or cultures overseas. Yeah, it just got under my skin that I wanted to do documentary filmmaking. What did you do after you came up with this idea, you're living in the Cayman Islands, or you're living on this yacht, which I could spend about an hour delving into the juice. (laughs) That was my other lifetime. That was your other (laughs) lifetime. We'll leave it there. What did you do then to take the first step toward making the discovery or the National Geographic a career? For me, it really was DC where National Geographic and Discovery and PBS are based. So in my mind, I just had to go there and meet people and be where the work is. So I picked up, packed my car and drove to DC and uh, had my best friend from college. Her sister was living there and crashed on her couch probably for a month before I got a job. And not at National Geographic at first, but at WashingtonPost.com, actually. What'd you do for WashingtonPost.com? I helped kind of like curate and edit their, they had like a community page back then as well as entertainment. It was kind of still in the journalistic editing, writing field. And then, yeah, I just plugged away until I part- go-getter, part luck, met the right person at the right time who just happened to be a VP at National Geographic. What was your first job at National Geographic? Being a researcher. And what did that mean you did? Did You you showed up every day. What did your day look like? In short, it was kind of fact-checking. So National Geographic has this standards and practices division, which every single show, the facts have to be verified with a couple outside sources. They don't ever want to harm animals. There's, There's kind of ethical guidelines as well as just basic fact guidelines. So we'd work with production companies and the executive producer to help guide the show to meet their standards and to make sure everything was factually accurate. So in short, I just, I saw, oh my gosh, at least 100 to 200 shows a year. And I have to say that is probably one of the most educational learning experiences going into documentary television is my job was literally to watch a hundred and some programs that went on National Geographic Channel every single year and see it go from the rough cut stage all the way through to the final stage. Okay, so let me poke on this because I want to understand exactly what you did. You had to show up to work. It wasn't like a telecommuting thing that you did from home. No, okay, no so you had I to worked show- at National Geographic headquarters in D.C. What's a rough cut? The production companies who produce the television shows, and then there are the networks who air them. So at this point in time, I was working for the network, the National Geographic Channel. So the network would have a production company go out. The production company would pitch a show. That's kind of the process that happens now. You know, they come up with ideas. They pitch the show. They like it. They work back and forth between the network and the production company. You know, we like this part of it, but we don't like that part, or we don't like this character, Finally, the show is greenlit, hopefully, and the production company goes out in the field, films it, comes back, edits together basically the first draft, you can call it, which would be the rough cut, which then they send to the network, and the network looks over it and basically gives comments back. Let me understand. Is the production company owned by the network? Does the network have their own production companies? Do they hire independent production companies? How does that work? Sometimes. And I'm, I'm speaking exclusively of documentary television. Some of the scripted television works a little bit different, but very similar. The networks sometimes own their own production companies. Like National Geographic has 
traditionally had National Geographic Television, though then it was called National Geographic Studios. It's had different names over the years. But National Geographic Television cannot produce enough hours to fill the National Geographic Channel. So the National Geographic Channel still has to go out to other production companies and commission them to produce programs for them, basically. All right. So then let's just say that someone is listening who wants to create documentary television Mm -hmm. and they decide to start their own production company. Is it easy to then get National Geographic to buy your product or does National Geographic have their certain production companies that they work with and it's really hard to break into that small group of trusted production companies? Yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Okay. The latter. It's a hard industry. If a network is about to throw out $250,000, $500,000 or more to someone to make a television show, they want to trust the person. They want to have a rapport with the person. They want to know their work is good. want to know they're going to deliver and deliver on time. It, it takes a while to build up that rapport with probably the decision makers to, to get in. You know, if you want it enough, for a lot of people, it becomes their lifestyle. It's an amazing lifestyle traveling the world, going places that you'd never go on your own. You know, you can travel to Africa on your own, but it's still totally different to go three hours off into some remote village and actually be able to sit down and talk to their chief. It's just documentary television gives you access to people and places that you just would never normally go or see. But now you're back working at National Geographic and you're reviewing all of these television shows from rough cut to final product and you're starting to see how it works how did you go from that job to becoming a television producer from there i started developing some of the programs so working with national geographic television on the production side now not the network side and coming up with ideas sometimes the network would say you know there's been this great discovery we heard on easter island go find us a story, you know, pitch us a, come up with a TV show and pitch it to us. It would be that general? You would get something that? Sometimes. Sometimes it's very specific. Not to bring up the Great Barrier Reef again, but yeah, one time it was literally, we have a slot for a two-hour special. Someone, some executive had this hankering for a show on the Great Barrier Reef. Go. Find a story, find research, find cool new stuff that's happening on the reef, find great characters, and you just start calling. You were given a task like that. And I think it's easy to say you just start. But I want to know on a really granular level, where do you start? It's a Tuesday. It's three o'clock. You get this assignment. Then what is the first thing you start to do? The first thing I would start to do is literally just Google the Great Barrier Reef, latest research. I think I'd comb any news sites that came up for new information, new findings, new research, if any scientists. Some scientists are more, especially when you're working in the scientists, some are much more media friendly than others. How do you find a media friendly scientist? Someone who's gregarious, outgoing, very talkative about their work. There are some people who talk very detailed and scientific, very bookish about their work. 
and then there's people who can talk about their work in a very layman's term, and that's usually the people you want to try to seek out. So you can kind of look out there in the media landscape already with the internet and see if there's anybody doing cool research who's already kind of has little YouTube clips or this, that, and the other, and have a good presence on camera. Otherwise, you just pick the top research universities and institutions, you know, doing work on the Great Barrier Reef, and you just start calling them up. If you are a scientist who desires to be on a show like National Geographic, get your stuff on YouTube, show that you're telegenic and that you're, <laughs> you talk much. outside of your silo of academia <laughs> and put yourself out there and then you will be potentially yep. identified by National Geographic or something like that. that so that, that's many that's, people appear on these shows. Yes. Okay. So absolutely. get your YouTube channel. You scientists who want to step out, get your YouTube channels going. Okay. Yep. So then you identify those scientists and you, then you do what? Do you have to fly out to the Great Barrier Reef? Can you do the work from abroad? What Usually is it's mainly from abroad and initially. So you're just, you're calling them. You're asking what's going on. Usually you get some little bite of something interesting research that's going on or discovery that's been made. Give or me an example of that. This particular one, it was years ago, but they were talking about corals and how corals are dying off. But someone had this theory that they were, I'm going to totally butcher the theory, but something about they were kind of retreating to deeper waters, the little polyps that make up corals, and they were going to come back and colonize again. And, you know, it's it's this story of, it, it's that story arc you're looking for of, you know, there's this challenge and there's this, this problem that needs to be overcome. And just when it looks horrible and everything's going to go bad, someone or something overcomes it. What you're suggesting is that it's not only about finding the interesting studies. It's finding the right character to tell about those mm -hmm. studies. And the right character is someone who is outgoing. And if they're going to be on camera, I'm sure that there's, I mean, it's probably not cool to say, but somewhat telegenic and also able to speak in layman's terms. But also that you, and I don't know if this is something you're saying you do or something that one must do, is take that science and create that story, really. Mm -hmm. Because a study without a story is not a show. Right. You you definitely have to find the story. And it's not just with science. It's with journalism and maybe social issues. With a social issue, you'd need to find, you know, doing something, say, on inequality in America. You need to find someone who has had a journey. They lost their job. They haven't been able to find a job. Now they're going on food stamps. Now they're, you know, you, you need those steps, the beginning, middle, and end. And then in the end, maybe that person finally finds a job and they can reflect back on how hard inequality is in America. But even in more simplistic terms, I'm not sure if I love this example, but I worked on one show where we were talking to survivors of tragic events, everything from people who have been attempted murder to people lost in the wild and had to survive for, you know, 72 hours, five days or something. So in that case, and like I said, this is just really easy example to understand. If you're looking for a survivor, they can't just have been attacked, went unconscious, and next thing you know, they're all better in the hospital. You need that journey that they're on. So they're attacked. They run to a farmhouse. They're knocking on the door for help. Someone's chasing them. I mean, this is an extreme example, but 
even though people might have these amazing stories, you need to find the stories that literally have some journey to them. I think about this because you are a specialist in nonfiction storytelling, essentially, mm-hmm. nonfiction television storytelling and nonfiction storytelling in your most current iteration of your career. And yet the stories that you tell all have a certain commonality and they have the traditional arc of a story. And it makes me wonder about how we interpret information or how we make sense of the world when things aren't as tidy and our addiction to these tidy, tiny takeaways. In reality television, and I know that that's not something that you have spent a tremendous amount of time in, but doing nonfiction television, I'm sure you've had your fair share of The industries are very much intertwined these days. How does one do nonfiction documentary, serious documentary television, like what you do, and how does that differ from reality television, and is there a wide range of reality uppercase R reality, lowercase R reality. And what are the differences in the similarities? Well, like you said, there is a wide range in both genres. I mean, technically, documentary television, especially following journalistic standards, you are letting the action unfold in front of you. You're not manipulating the situation. You're not telling people to do anything for you. You know, then kind of as you skew a little away from more of the journalistic ethics, There is documentary television where you got the person coming out the door, but you want to shoot them from inside going out. So then you have them re-walk out the door several times. You're still usually not manipulating, hopefully. You're not making things happen or drama happen for the sake of happening. You're still following real characters in their real element real time and how their their life is or their situation is or whatever happens to be unfolding. You might have them redo stuff, but you're not manipulating them. But again, true documentary, you're not manipulating them at all. You're not even making them walk through a door a second time to get that perfect shot. Even in journalistic documentary filmmaking, you still need to put it together as a story. And how Mm -hmm. often does that process tell it in a way that might be more digestible, but maybe less real. Yes, there's an editing process. So you are taking out time, you're taking out chunks. The key is not to present a story or a scenario or sequence of events out of sequence or misleading. You know, you don't want to cut one event that happened in the morning On one day and another event that happened on another day, you're technically not supposed to cut those together to make it look like it was one event. You're definitely cutting out chunks of time and you're cutting out things to make the documentary move forward to tell the story quicker than you would if you're standing there in real time because sometimes it takes forever. Are those lines clear? I mean, you, you used a good example. You're not supposed to take something from one day and slice it into another day. But what if it made the story so much better. And it kind of didn't really change the story. Are the lines clear when making journalistic nonfiction television? When you're talking about journalism, yes, most journalists follow several organizations have ethics. NPPA is one of them. It's very laid out. But when you're getting into other forms of documentary, where it's entertainment, or it's marketing for corporations that the lines start to get blurred. There is a big debate which goes on constantly between 
kind of more the journalistic side and more the marketing side nowadays, which is this whole new genre, which has popped up in the past decade is, you know, storytelling for corporations, which they're taking corporations. Starbucks did an amazing documentary mini series on the web about, it's called Upstanders. We'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, it's people doing good in the community. And that's the kind of stuff that you're doing now, I know. I am, a lot more of that. Still working in television, some. Called upon a lot these days to help fix shows and post-production, which might not have a story. They went out and shot it, and the story's not quite there, so you have to kind of really edit and hone the script to, to get a little more captivating story. And then also, yes, working for corporations to come in and help everything from train them on how to find their story and tell their story better through media to actually doing videos for corporations and organizations. And I want to put a pin in that and come back to that because I think that's really interesting work. But before I do, I want to delve a little bit back to the whole desire to tell a story in a very captivating way, Mm -hmm. coupled with the desire to tell the truth. And there are certain truthful stories that just aren't that appealing to us. We don't really like the stories that don't have a quality of a redemption. We don't like stories that aren't really a journey, even though many of the things that we experience as truthful stories in our lives really don't have that trajectory. But those aren't the ones we remember. I guess my question is, what can we as consumers do to know whether we are watching Reality with an uppercase R, reality with a lowercase R, documentary television that is real, documentary television that isn't real. How do we as consumers understand the truth, particularly when the truth isn't always the narrative that we like to The truth isn't necessarily the spoonful of sugar that helps the medicine go down. Watching TV nowadays, you always have to take everything with a little bit of a grain of salt. I mean... Reality TV is much more manipulated. It's some as scripted as like having flow charts that you put characters, your your people in a situation, and if they do A, you go this way, and if they do B, then you do this. And very much scripted, feeding, quote-unquote, ordinary people their lines. And then there's also reality TV, which is a little bit less manipulated. I think it's all manipulated to some version. It's all kind of scripted out to a certain degree. But how can you tell what's real and what's not? I think taking it all with a grain of salt and then doing your research. So one, it depends what network it's being shown on. One are known for more entertainment type programming and others are known for more of their factual based programming. So doing a little bit of your research, but wonder- it's, it's hard. It's, I think the lines are all blurred nowadays. Well, it's really hard because when the reality television shows are created to just feed our amygdala, you know, just feed our reptile brains, right? It's really difficult then to consume more serious, non-predictable narratives and to digest that information, particularly with all the information that we have. The, the problem with television, I think there's, there's just so much television out there now. There's so many networks. There's so much programming. Everybody's vying for eyeballs. It's a flooded kind of market right now. Once you're in the midst of it, you're living and breathing it day in and day out. You see all of this stuff all year around you, which might be interesting. But if you have an outsider perspective and come in and really sift through all of that stuff, there's almost always a really fascinating story there. And if told properly, I think that's the other thing is I've found through all my work, whether it be in television, where sometimes I'm talking to 
Joe Schmo, the next door neighbor, and you would never think that they had a story. If you ask the right questions and are really curious, you usually can find they almost always have some amazing story. You talk about asking good questions. Looking over all of your experiences, can you give me an example of a good question? That's tough because it definitely depends on who you are speaking to. So this career has afforded me, I feel incredibly lucky to speak to such a wide range of people in such varying situations from Neil Armstrong, Jane Goodall, amazing researcher who works with chimpanzees, Sylvia Earle, who's one of the leading oceanographers. You know, they all had such different insights in these amazing fields that they've been at the forefront of. And then on the flip side, I interview people who, to our common eye, might be really ordinary, average people, your next door neighbor who might have a crocodile, raising a crocodile in his bathtub. You know, I've, I've spoken to that guy. Then someone on death row who you would ask him some of the most powerful questions is just, did he regret doing what he did? He wholeheartedly admitted to the crime. And he was, I think sometimes it's even the way people answer the questions, which are really powerful and the humbleness and emotion behind it. And I think that's what stuck with me with the death row guy is how much he did regret and what did he do? apologized. He murdered someone. Yeah. But that was a show basically looking into death row, going inside death row. Is there a different way you ask questions in your work than I would ask in my work? Interviewing is definitely a learned skill, I think, over time. In everyday life, when you're talking to someone, if someone gets upset or sad or you know uncomfortable with the questions, your nature is to pull them out of that, to make them happier, to make them feel comfortable again. Whereas when you're interviewing someone and really trying to dig deep into the story, that's not necessarily what you want to do. You want them to go deeper into that story and, and tell you how they're really feeling. And that's when you get the really raw truth. So one of the most heart heartbreaking, I guess, memorable experiences is I was interviewing a woman whose little baby was on life support for, had whooping cough and had just had a stroke. It was heartbreaking. And I'm interviewing her and of course she's upset, but you have to ask the even tougher questions. So, you know, one of them was just simply, do you just want to be holding your baby in your arms right now? And that probably provoked one of the most amazing answers. And what I found is, I think when I first started in this industry is, oh my gosh, that feels so horrible and manipulative. But it, it honestly, it is very rare I've found someone who does not want to tell their story and has not found cathartic to them or is very happy to tell it to help someone else. So I think that's what's very rewarding about what I do. That is a really good takeaway because I think it's very true that when you are asking questions normally and you are seeing that the response to your questions creates discomfort, mm -hmm. your inclination is therefore to not continue with that line of curiosity, but to bring them out of that discomfort. In other words, you're actually replacing your curiosity with a desire to have a calm, comfortable situation. And actually, I think about that when you're talking about that, I think that's a really good takeaway because you really needed to get beneath that. You needed to get beyond that. And I think that when usually the interviewee also wants to get beyond that. It's basically helping them push them beyond that. And once you break that, 
then I think it builds a trust and a, a back to a comfort level. But I think that in the event that the interviewee did not want to go there or didn't mm-hmm. think that they wanted to go there, I still think that it's an important takeaway. So I'm thinking about yeah. you're interviewing a doctor, let's just say. Yeah. And let's say you're interviewing a doctor about your own diagnosis or the diagnosis of your child. And they are saying something and you want to question their authority or question their conclusion in mm-hmm. some way because you're curious about their conclusion and they might get defensive because you're challenging their authority and so your inclination then is to backtrack on that question because you exactly. don't want to upset the apple cart but then you're left without satisfying the, the curiosity that may reveal something that is ultimately more important than the comfort level of that doctor so i think that Absolutely. there's a practical application to this as i'm listening to this yeah. um, you have to do it in a polite and gentle manner, but I think it, it's absolutely achievable. That is why I believe in curiosity training for what I do, and I want to use that as a segue to talk a little bit before we wrap up about what you do now and how you've transitioned from touring around the world and jumping on a plane with you know four or five hours notice to what you're doing using the same skills and techniques for organizations and corporations. Yeah, I still help out television and consult and write and produce with that. But more and more, I'm taking those skills and storytelling skills and media skills and taking it into kind of more the advertising and corporate world, as well as I have a real passion for NGOs and nonprofits, especially given I've traveled all over the world and helping NGOs. So yeah, helping them Come in, it's a little bit of twofold, either helping come in and and distill their story, distill what story is most enticing and can really grab people, and helping them put that into action in the form of visual campaign, whether it be photography and video or social media, and then also training those organizations. There's so much technology at our fingertips, and it's such fast-paced media, especially with social media, the corporations and organizations are being asked to put out so much media these days that they really can take it into their own hands. They don't need to hire a big production company necessarily. You know, if you want a big, beautiful video or a once a year campaign, absolutely hire someone to do that beautiful video and do it right. But there's also so much that a corporation as a whole can train their people to become media makers. And media makers that help support their story. So if you distill their story and then do fun little training to equip your employees. It's a fun way to to help people. I love that because I love that you're able to train other people to see stories in the mess and mayhem of their everyday life. So whether you're looking across the landscape at research and extracting stories that way, or you're looking at a company across all of the things that they're doing and extracting the most poignant stories that way, I love that you're taking it to the next level and also training employees within that company to see and extract those stories, even though ultimately they may give them to you to create the film. You're, you're good with that, though. Yep, yep. That's all, <laughs> can do it that's all fine. But it's also just fun. It's fun for, um, I do a fun, very fun, interactive way of video making with your phone, and it gives everyone a, a good time. Well, we'll put your contact information so that companies that want to explore this for their employees or for their teams, or even to have you do this kind of work for them, they can go to the uh, Applied Curiosity Lab 
forward slash blog and find the show notes for this and all the links to everything to find you. Before we wrap up, I would like to do these things I call QCQs. And the first question I have for you is, what is something that you have purchased in the last six months, a year that was under $100 that you have gotten the most enjoyment out of? I'm more of an experienced type person. I, I would bet that's true. My Yoga Glow subscription, so I could do yoga from home. I have kids, work full time, can never get to yoga. So yeah, my Yoga Glow subscription. Is it an app? It's on the web, but it's also, I have Roku on TV. It's a kind of a channel on the Roku, and it's, it's a subscription-based yoga. It's awesome. You can have a yoga workout for runners or surfers. It's, it's all kinds of stuff. Okay, cool. We're going to put that in the show notes. That's awesome. And my last QCQ is, if you could put a billboard up anywhere in the world, where would you put it, and what would it say? These are hard questions here, Becky. <laughs> you know, I think it would just be... Um, be kind. Maybe with a big smiling, beautiful, I'm into photography. So big smiling face on it. I think it's contagious. Where I would put it, maybe in just really fast paced cities. Okay, I think that's good. And I'll ask you one more. What has been the most useful, productive product, book, seminar, summit, online course, that you have taken or experienced or read or consumed in the last year? I'm a big fan of Creative Live. I've done some of their courses and their courses span from everything from photography and video to entrepreneurial type classes on business and marketing. And they're great bite size kind of, you know, digestible classes. And yeah, I find them fantastic, really helpful. Thank you so much for chatting with me. We're going to put all of the links and everything to everything you talked about in the show notes. If someone wants to get a hold of you or find you, where should they go? I have a website, just laurafravel.com. It has all my information there and some of my work. And thank you, Becky. This was so much fun being here. Thank you. Chatting with you. Thank you. Laura Fravel is a producer, filmmaker, photographer, show doctor, and founder of Media Maker Lab. She can be found at laurafravel.com. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question, would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you are invited to join the Tribe of the Curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday. This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to appliedcuriositylab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity. Curiosity.